Let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to be together, to gather, to hear from your word, to learn, to be equipped. Uh, we pray that you would bless this sermon and you would give clarity. We pray that you would bless this new series that we're starting, Lord, and that you would give us clarity through it. And, uh, and we thank you for your grace and empowerment. And amen. So today we are starting a new series called the GCF Vision. Um, the vision or the GCF vision is a term that we use a lot, but I'm not sure we've actually done a good job of teaching on it or explaining what we mean by it. So in this series, I'm going to try to concisely yet thoroughly explain exactly what the GCF vision is. So our vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. And at the core, I would say there's five of them. Uh, number one, having a biblically complete presentation of the gospel, which is the one we'll be talking about today. Number two, being grace-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. So I'll be talking about each one of these. Uh, each one of these is going to get at least one sermon done on it. But this, at its is the core of the GCF vision. These are the things we believe God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. And so I'm not saying uh, that there are no churches that have these things, but most churches don't have all of them. Some are doing well in one or two, others are doing well at a different one or two, but very few churches have all of these qualities at the same time. But we believe that by God's grace, the church will dis uh, rediscover and restore these things. Um, so the GCF vision is a vision of restoration. We believe that the early church had all five of these aspects and that God wants to restore these to his church. And therefore, we are seeking to rediscover and restore these aspects of biblical Christianity in our own lives. And we hope to be able to model them for others. So that is the intro to this series. But today's sermon is titled, Having a Biblically Complete Presentation of the Gospel. Uh, you know, that is something the church ought to have, a biblically complete presentation of the gospel. So one of the problems the church in America suffers from today is that a lot of the time we have a presentation of the gospel that's incomplete or that's lacking. Oftentimes, we water down the gospel in order to make it uh, easier to accept or less offensive to people. And that might be done with good intentions even, with getting more people to know Christ. Um, but it's had a, a bad effect on the church in America. It's, we've watered down the gospel to the point where it's fairly weak here in America. We don't preach that people need to submit every area of their lives to Christ, which is outright wrong, and we've reduced receiving Christ into saying a sinner's prayer without even necessarily understanding the gospel or actually repenting. And sadly, because the church's presentation of the gospel has become uh, fairly incomplete in America, we have a lot of nominal Christians and false converts in America. There's a lot of people that think they're a Christian just because they grew up in a Christian home, or just because they went to church when they were a kid. And that does not make you a Christian. 
So we need, as the church needs to have a biblically complete presentation of the gospel. And I chose to say presentation instead of just saying understanding. It's not enough for Christians to understand the gospel for themselves, but when we share it with others, our sharing it has to be a complete sharing it. We can't leave bits and pieces out in order to make it less offensive or easier to accept. We need a biblically complete presentation of the gospel. So how do we do that? How do we have a biblically complete presentation of the gospel? Um, There's a few things I think we need to do or have in order to get back to having a biblically complete presentation of the gospel. Uh, For one thing, we have to have a good understanding of biblical conversion and what the Bible says about false conversion. So uh, understanding biblical conversion. Conversion involves repenting and trusting Christ. Um, I just want to point that out. It's a key thing about receiving Christ. It involves repenting and trusting Christ. It needs both of them. So I want to show some verses that talk about the need to repent as part of receiving Christ. Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mark 1.4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Luke 13, 1 through 3. There were some present at that very time also who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So repentance is a necessary part of receiving the gospel, and if you take repentance out, a person hasn't received the gospel. But conversion involves repenting and believing, believing as in trusting in Christ. Uh, Let's look at some verses that show that. So Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Acts 16, 29 through 31. Uh, So this is um, after Paul and Silas were praying, and then the chains came unbound, and everyone could escape the prison. And so the jailer was quite scared. He thought he was going to die, because they would have killed him. The government would have killed him. Uh, And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then let's look at Romans 4, verses 1 through 3. What then... Uh, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So a person needs to believe the gospel. That's part of receiving Christ. That's part of being converted. And then 
you know, lastly, I just want to emphasize that they, a person needs both of those together. Let's look at James 14, no, James 2, uh, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things he needs for his body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So at the beginning of verse 14, he says, if someone says he has faith. He doesn't say, if that person does have faith. He says, if they say they have faith. What James is implying, what James is saying, is that person does not have faith. Faith without works is dead. He's saying their faith isn't real. They don't have actual faith. And therefore, they're not saved. It is faith uh, that, by faith that we receive Christ's salvation. But faith without repentance isn't real faith. A person does not repent or believe in order to earn God's forgiveness because it's impossible to earn forgiveness. That's a contradiction. Um, But believing and repenting is the means by which we receive the gift of God's forgiveness. So conversion involves repenting and trusting Christ. Uh, Another thing I want to point out about conversion is that no one can be converted apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus said just plain and outright, you know, we can't come to God on our own. We have sinful natures, and as beings with sinful natures, we're not going to just turn to God on our own to get that fixed without him doing something to draw us, without him initiating it without him prompting us and working in us to draw draw us to himself. Not only that, but Jesus taught that we have to be born again by the Spirit, showing that, you know, a person can't be converted without the work of the Spirit. Let's look at John 3, verses 1 through 8. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So he's saying no one can come to God, no one can become part of his kingdom unless they're born of the Spirit, unless the Spirit does a work in them to lead them to repent. And whenever someone does repent, it's because the Holy Spirit did a work in them. Let's lastly look at Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Before Christ saved us, before he brought us to um, repent and trust him, we were dead in our trespasses. And the dead can do nothing to become alive. It's only up to someone else who has the ability to raise them from being dead to raise them from being dead. So no one can be converted apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And the last thing I want to point out about understanding biblical conversion is that true converts will persist in the faith. So the Bible doesn't teach that a Christian can fall away from the faith, but that if a person does fall away from the faith and not repent, they were never actually a real convert at all. Let's look at 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, or if they were part of Christ's church, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be, become plain that they were not of us, or that they were not of Christ's church. So the people John is talking about were never true Christians to begin with. The Bible teaches that truly born-again believers won't fall away from the faith. Let's look at 1 John 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning but be, uh, because he has been born of God. And again, John is not saying that Christians don't fail. Christians definitely fail. Um, otherwise, none of us are Christians. He's saying that uh, a person won't go on in unrepentant sin without repenting. A Christian won't. And then let's look again at 1 John 5.18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So this talks about God's protecting those whom he has converted, those whom he has called. It's something that God does. And a, a true convert may fall into serious sin or unrepentant sin for a time, but they will not stay there. You know, Peter denied Christ three times. When he denied Christ the first time, he didn't think, man, I messed up, I need to repent. He denied Christ the second time, and then a third time. And then he realized that he needed to repent later. And an even more clear picture of the case is David. You know, David committed murder and adultery and didn't repent of it for months. He fell into willful sin without repenting for months. But since God's spirit was working in him, he did still repent. So we need to understand what biblical conversion is if we want to have a, com a biblically complete presentation of the gospel. But we also need to understand what the Bible says about false conversion, because the Bible does warn about it. 
Let's look at Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the Bible warns that a person could think that they're a Christian and not be. That's a danger, and sadly, that's a common thing in America today. But it's not something we have to worry about. It's something a person can know with certainty whether or not they've received Christ. A person can only be a false Christian if they haven't actually repented or if they haven't actually trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Like if they're trusting in their good works for the forgiveness of their sins. So why do we need to understand this? You know, if we're going to be aiming at when we share the gospel to see people really come to Christ, we we need to understand what makes a person converted and when a person has received Christ. If not, we could be presenting a gospel and leading someone to believe they've become a Christian when they really haven't, and that's a big problem in America today. So it's really important that we just understand this at its core. This needs to be part of our thinking day in and day out, part of our paradigm that receiving Christ involves repenting and believing. We need to understand what biblical conversion is and that it's a work of God. So not only that, but we need need to trust God to provide the conversion. And it's important that we trust God to provide conversion and we don't see it as merely a human thing. There are certain benefits or um, things that trusting God to provide conversion helps us with. Trusting God to provide conversion can keep us from the temptation to water down the gospel. I think the belief that uh, whether or not a person receives Christ is entirely up to them and has nothing to do with what God wants them to do or whether or not God works in them leads to temptation to water down the gospel. If it's entirely up to the person listening to the gospel whether or not they receive it, then we're going to try to make it as easy for them to receive as possible. It's going to be a temptation to avoid telling people that they have to submit their entire life to God or to be vague about the fact that they have to submit their entire life to God. And it can also be a temptation to tell people that everything in their life will be blessed and problem-free if they receive Christ. And it won't be. But if we believe that God is the one who initiates conversion, then we can have you know, confidence when we share the gospel of people. We can have the confidence that we need to share the real gospel of people. This is very important, because I think not understanding that God is the one that initiates conversion is what's led to the watering down of the gospel in America. Because it's the cause of the temptation to water it down. Not only that, but trusting God to provide the conversion helps us remember that we need to rely on God rather than on human strength and wisdom. 
if we think that it's up to the person uh, hearing the gospel whether or not they want to accept it, we might be more likely to rely entirely on human means of persuasion instead of relying on God in prayer and seeking wisdom from his spirit. Because thinking that it's ultimately up to humans makes it make sense to rely on human strength. And also, uh, trusting God to provide conversion gives us more reason to not give up when sharing the gospel doesn't go how we would want it to. You know, sometimes preaching the gospel can get discouraging. Sometimes we may go through seasons of preaching the gospel where no one's listening and no one wants to listen. But if we trust in God's promise to save his elect, that will give us strength to not give in to despair when things don't go well. So the first thing um, that we need to do to get back to having a biblical presentation of the gospel, a biblically complete presentation of the gospel, is we need to understand biblical conversion. The next thing that I think uh, we need to do is we need to be aiming for making disciples, not aiming just for decisions. So what do I mean by that? Um, We need to understand that praying a sinner's prayer does not mean that you've received Christ. So when I say sinner's prayer, um, I'm sure we've all seen the stereotypical example of the altar call. If you'll just come and just pray this prayer and ask Jesus into your heart and mean it sincerely, then you have eternal life. That's a common message in America. By and large, that's the message of the gospel in America. But praying a sinner's prayer does not necessarily save someone because they might not understand the gospel. A lot of times people get rushed into praying a sinner's prayer at an altar call, and you know, sadly, a lot of evangelists are aiming to rush people into it. A lot of times people rushed into praying a sinner's prayer either don't fully understand the gospel or aren't committed to surrendering their entire life to Christ or they don't even know that they need to surrender their entire life to Christ. And if a person prays a sinner's prayer without those things, without being committed to surrendering their entire life to Christ, or without understanding the gospel, then they're not converted. They haven't received the gospel, but they're being led to believe that they have. And that's a problem. Uh, As a child growing up and as a a teenager, I thought that just how you receive salvation is just asking for it. And I didn't understand that you need to actually submit your life to Christ. And I didn't submit my life to Christ. And I don't think I was actually converted. I made very little growth as a Christian, basically none. And I had no interest in following God. But I had prayed a sinner's prayer many times. So we need to understand that praying a sinner's prayer does not necessarily mean that someone has received Christ, because it's about repenting and trusting in Christ. And we should, when we repent and trust him, ask for the forgiveness of our sins. But it's just so easy to rush people into praying a prayer where they don't understand the gospel and they're not committed to repenting, and they don't even understand the need to. And sadly, that's common today. 
So we need to make sure people actually understand the gospel. We need to avoid moving too quickly. Not everything has to be fast and efficient. I know I like everything fast and efficient, but not everything has to be fast and efficient. We need to not rush when working with people and helping them to understand the gospel. We need to be willing to take the time to work with them and get feedback and make sure they really understand it. Because we don't want to end up giving a people a false hope that they've been converted, but when they haven't actually understand the gospel, because we haven't taken the time to explain it. The third thing that we uh, need to do for having a biblical presentation of the gospel, stressing Lord and Savior. You need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, not just as your Savior, and not just as your Lord. It needs to be Lord and Savior. But in America today, we tend to only talk about receiving Christ as your Savior. But you can't just do one. Christ's wants to be Lord and Savior. And, uh, you know, if you don't receive him as both, you receive him as neither. You don't get to tell Christ what to do because he's God. Let's look at Mark 10, 17 through 22. And as uh, Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. And honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The rich young ruler would have been willing to pray a sinner's prayer if that's all Jesus would have told him he had to do. But he was not willing to submit to Christ as Lord. And Jesus knew that he wasn't willing to submit to him as Lord. And so Jesus confronted him on it, and he wasn't ready, and Jesus let him walk away because he was unwilling to submit to Christ as Lord. Jesus wasn't going to give him a false hope and say, all you have to do is ask me to forgive your sins And then you can live however you want and mostly submit to me, but not really. Jesus said, I have to be Lord of your life. And he wasn't willing. And Jesus let him walk away. If we don't stress that Jesus needs... that we need to receive Christ as Lord and as Savior, we can easily be leading people to be false converts. Let's look at 1 John 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, or I know God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So if we tell people that they can, if we present a gospel where people can know God without keeping his commandments, 
than we're liars. And again, it's not that Christians never fail or give in to temptation. We all fail. We all stumble against temptation. But it's about uh, the commitment to seek to obey God in everything. It's what submitting to Christ as Lord means. But sadly, we do very poorly today in America at presenting this as part of the gospel. But when Jesus presented the gospel, when Jesus... um, was working with people, he wouldn't leave it out. The rich young ruler asked, what must I do to have eternal life? And he told him, you have to submit to me as Lord. Because he knew that was the thing the rich young ruler was unwilling to do. We need to submit to him as Lord and trust him as Savior. The next thing uh, we should do if we're seeking to have a biblically complete presentation of the gospel, um, we should call people to count the cost of following Christ. Let's look at Luke 14, 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, accompanied Jesus. And he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man has began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace." So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, today in gospel presentations, we tell people that God has a wonderful plan for your life and that all you have to do is ask Jesus into your heart. And that's it. But Jesus told people, make sure you really want to be a Christian before you commit to this because you have to deny yourself and submit everything to me. We need to make sure people understand what becoming a Christian entails. And again, if a person doesn't count the cost of following Jesus, if we hide what becoming a Christian entails from people, they might end up becoming a false convert. Let's look at Matthew 13, 20 through 21. Jesus explaining uh, the parable of the sower. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. God has a wonderful plan for my life. This is great. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. We 
we have to help people understand that, you know, receiving Christ involves making him Lord of your life and that it's not going to make all your problems go away. It's definitely worth doing and there are many benefits to it and we should let people know what those are. But it, it's not going to make your life free of pain. We need to be real with people. The next thing um, we need to do if we want to have a biblically complete presentation of the gospel, we need to include all essential aspects of the gospel, not leaving anything out. So uh, what are the essential aspects of the gospel? Um, well, number one, there's a God. You can't have the gospel without God. People need to understand that God is the creator and that God is holy. And uh, sometimes when evangelizing, um, I feel like for some people, holy almost seems like an all archaic word and they don't have a connotation for it. So if, if I'm talking to a person and they don't understand what holy means because we never use it in any other context, um, so it can be easy to not understand what it means, I typically explain that it means God is the highest that he's the most important and the most powerful. It means he's different, but he's different in a way that he's above us. He's the most powerful, he's the most important. And that's a good start for understanding what it means that God is holy. But people need, we need to understand that God is holy. Anyone who's going to understand the gospel needs to understand that God is creator and God is holy. They also need to understand that God is judge. Another essential element for understanding the gospel is man, uh, who we are in relation to God. We need to understand that God made us in his image and that we were made to love and worship God. The fact that we were made to love and worship God helps us to understand sin because we don't love and worship God. And because we were made in God's image and we were made to love and worship him, we're held to a standard. Another essential element of the gospel is law or sin or judgment. I kind of put all those together because if you understand the law, you should understand sin if you um, see your life accurately. The law is very related to sin and judgment. Uh, let's look at Galatians 3 verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian, or some translations say tutor, when it says guardian um, it kind of means like legal guardian, which in um, the times of Scripture would have been somewhat like a tutor. But so then, we are, the law was our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So God gave us the law to help us understand sin, because we need to understand sin before we can understand that Christ died for our sins. Not only do we need to understand the law, but we need to understand the gap, the gap between God's commands and God's holiness and where we are. And we need to see that gap as real. If a person doesn't see that gap as real or as big, they won't be ready to receive the gospel. We don't just need a literal churching up. There is a big gap between where we are 
and where God's holiness is. Let's look at Isaiah 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds, all our good works, all the good things we do for other people uh, are like a polluted garment, a filthy garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So the Hebrew word here actually means uh, menstrual rags, which were ceremonially unclean. And if a person is ceremonially unclean, they can't stand before God. All our good deeds, every righteous thing we've ever done in life, is not enough for us to be able to stand before a holy God without dying. Because you can't enter the holy of holies while being ceremonially unclean. So we need to understand the gap between, um, you know, all of our good deeds and God's holiness. It's a big gap. And we need to understand the consequences of our sin, that there is judgment, that God is going to judge sin. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 5.22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool or you empty head, will be liable to the hell of fire. And Jesus is talking about, um, you know, the guilt of our sin apart from forgiveness. If it weren't for forgiveness from receiving Christ, you know, we would be guilty to the hell of fire. We would be liable. But God's forgiveness changes that. So we need to understand God, man, law, and sin, and we need to understand Christ. We need to include Christ in our presentation of the gospel. We need to understand that Christ is God and man, and that he died for our sins and that he rose again. We need to be also including how to receive Christ. If a person wasn't told how to receive Christ, if we, when we present the gospel, don't tell people how to receive Christ, we haven't told them the gospel. Because if they don't get told how to receive Christ, how will they receive Christ? And the last thing I would say we need to include as an essential element of the gospel is how to grow as Christians. So this is an often neglected element of the gospel, and we'll get into why it's important in just a bit. But how to grow as Christians needs to be part of our presentation of the gospel. So I'm not saying that a person needs to know how to grow in order to be saved. You don't need to know how to grow in order to receive Christ. What I'm saying is that if we lead people to Christ and don't teach them how to grow in Christ, we didn't present the complete good news to them. So we need to tell people how to grow in Christ. We need to teach them God's commands for Christian living. We need to teach them about the means of grace and how we rely on God and his spirit for sanctification, for Christian growth. We need to teach them about, about baptism, being baptized in water and being baptized in the spirit. We need to teach them about deliverance and help them get delivered from any demons that might be oppressing them. 
how to grow as a Christian is an essential element of hearing the good news. If we don't tell people how to grow as Christians, then we have neglected to share all the good news with them. And that leads us to the last thing we need to have if we want to um, have a biblically complete presentation of the gospel. We need to be helping converts grow as Christians. Let's look at Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the Great Commission involves teaching, teaching Christ's commandments and baptizing. And it involves helping people get established in Christ. Not just getting someone to accept Christ and then leaving them on their own. Which I think we have a problem with in America today is part of our mindset to rush and be efficient and do everything quickly. If we lead people to Christ but don't help them to grow or lead them to a place where we, they can grow, then we're neglecting the Great Commission. Because Jesus said very clearly, make disciples of the nations, baptizing them, teaching them my commandments. We can't afford to think of helping new converts grow as some lesser work than leading people to Christ. Helping Christians grow is very important to Christ. Let's look at John 21, 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Notice Jesus didn't say, if you love me, go share the gospel and lead people to Christ. He said, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, help my people to grow spiritually. This is a work that's very important to Christ. And it's part of the Great Commission. And if we neglect helping new Christians grow, we are neglecting the Great Commission. This is how Paul shared the gospel. Let's look at Colossians 1, verse 28. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He's not aiming just to present that they've received Christ, but that they've become mature in Christ. Paul didn't neglect to help people grow after they received the gospel. 
Paul was definitely an evangelist. He went around proclaiming the gospel, but he was concerned with helping people grow. He didn't just lead people to Christ and drop them off to fend for themselves and grow on their own. He helped them get established in Christ. And when we share the gospel of people and they receive it, if we neglect to help them grow afterwards, then we're neglecting the Great Commission. So we need to have a biblically complete presentation of the gospel. In conclusion, the church needs to have a biblically complete presentation of the gospel. We need to understand what biblical conversion is, how it happens, how people receive Christ. We need to um, be teaching that people need to receive Christ as Lord and as Savior. We need to make sure they actually understand it. And we need to help people grow after they receive the gospel and help them get established in Christ. And so uh, next week, as we continue this new series, the GCF Vision, or next time I speak, uh, we'll talk about being grace-based, and that will be part two. So let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Um, to hear and to learn. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to have a biblically complete presentation of the gospel. We pray that you would give us boldness and wisdom and understanding, and we pray that um, as we share the gospel that your spirit would work in us and in others, Lord. We pray that uh, you would just be working in us to help us um, share the gospel with the power of your spirit. And we thank you for your grace and amen.